So I'm going to ask Paul to come up now. We're going to pray for him, so stretch out a hand. Father God, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the word he's carrying for tonight. We thank you for his ability to see the big picture and lead us beyond where we are now. To lead us into all that you want us to be and all what the next steps are. So I pray, Father, you'll release power and wisdom through Paul's words tonight. Thank you, thank you. Amen. Amen. Great. Thanks, Lynn. Evening, everybody. Evening. It's lovely to see you. Um, so as Lynn said, I'm Paul, and Becky, my wife, and I lead the team here. And actually, one of the things we want to do today is to say that if you are a newcomer to the life of the church, we'd love to get to know you, help you find your way into the life of the church. If you're not such a newcomer, we'd love to help you find your way into being somebody who contributes to the life of the church by uh, being on team. So one of the things is that when we're part of a church, we're part of a body and we all have gifts and, and abilities that we can give. And really all that you see, um, okay, people like Lynn and me get to stand at the front, but there's loads of people who make it happen. And um, we're looking for people to help serve in our youth and children's work in the morning, uh, in our hospitality in the evenings, or even during the week in the atrium coffee bar that we run for the community, uh, in worship, which means music up the front, or tech at the back. And um, one of the reasons why I want to highlight that is because Facebook reminded, normally when Facebook reminds me of things, I'm you know, a little bit freaked out by it. It's like how long ago it was. But Facebook reminded me, it says, you have a memory, um, which at my age is quite a nice thing. Um, but it said, you have a memory. Two years ago was, two years ago, this very day was the first live stream service we did as we started going into the pandemic. Isn't that amazing? Two years ago. And um, one thing that we're going to be doing this week on Wednesday, Wednesday is holding the National Day of Remembrance as well for all those who lost their life or livelihoods during the pandemic as well, because uh, that was two years from lockdown, I think, as we started on Wednesday. So we're looking tonight um, in ongoing in our series, uh, how is it that we can grow closer to God? And tonight we're going to be looking at um, how God has given us the Bible and how the Bible is meant to function in our lives so that we can grow closer to God. But one of the things I was reading about this week was um, something called the dictator's dilemma. Um, there are lots of dictators in the world, and you'd think if you're a dictator, you shouldn't have any dilemmas. You just do what you want. Everybody has to agree. But the dictator's dilemma, apparently, is that when it comes to elections, they know they're going to win... They know the election is rigged. The big question is, do they want to win with 99% of the vote or 95% of the vote? In other words, do you make it look like a complete landslide or, or do you kind of like make it look as though there was at least some possibility that people could object? So over the years, there have been a number of people who have taken various approaches to this. So um, Kim Jong-un, who is the leader of North Korea, he was elected to their parliament with a massive... 100% of the vote. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he must be an amazing guy. 100% of the people voted for him. And then um, Saddam Hussein, when he was running Iraq, he also won 100% of the vote in a 2002 referendum. Um, King Jong-un's father, King Jong-il, when he was running North Korea, only got 99.9% .9 of the vote. Okay, we don't know what happened there. 
But, you know, obviously it was a free and fair election because people could have voted against him, clearly. Castro in Cuba, 99.4% of the vote. Uh, Syria's al-Assad, 97.6% of the vote. And it goes on. So Turkmenistan, Chechnya, both the leaders of those countries secured 99.5% of the vote. Now, does anybody think that those results are in any way meaningful? No. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Because you, you imagine that in an authoritarian regime, elections are managed, people don't vote in any other way than for the person that they've been told to vote for because they fear reprisals. And you would basically look at that and go, that is completely meaningless. But it doesn't have to be on such a massive scale because we see lots of other things that are not dissimilar. So, for example, there was an Australian MP who forgot to log out of his own account and into the fake account before he started praising himself on Facebook. So he basically got onto Facebook and, go, and goes, you're amazing, you're like the best MP ever, and forgot that he was actually still logged in on his own account. Or the, um, the group of 49 eminent British authors who wrote uh, an open letter criticizing various other authors who they named who had been writing reviews of their own books on Amazon as if their books were brilliant and dissing every, all their rivals and saying their books were rubbish. I mean, the basic principle in this is that it isn't meaningful if you testify to yourself and your own glory. So I would say you cannot elect yourself, you can't review yourself, and you can't witness to yourself and say, no, 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 I definitely didn't do it. That doesn't actually carry any weight at all. And the passage we're looking at tonight is where Jesus has to justify himself in the eyes of the religious leaders. So we're actually looking at a passage in John chapter 5. I think in your Bibles, you're on about page 1068. And let me just read a verse um, from the beginning of this passage. Because in verse 31, sorry, a little bit further into the passage, verse 31 Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. You, you would expect Jesus to say, my testimony is not valid, but I'm still speaking the truth. But actually, Jesus says, no, if I testify about myself, I wouldn't be being who I really am. But then he goes on to say, but yet there is one who does testify for me, and he means God. So this principle of you can't elect yourself, you can't review yourself, you can't witness to yourself, this is kind of what's under scrutiny in this passage. And the reason Jesus has to do that is because of what's going on in the rest of the chapter. So if you look back at the start of the chapter, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus has come up to one of the festivals of the Jews, and um, he goes to a place called Bethesda, where there was a pool, and at Bethesda, there was, um, sorry, the pool of Bethsaida. Oh, Bethesda, oh, it's some manuscripts at the bottom, it says Bethesda, Bethsaida, you know. Um, but basically, the point was, there was this pool. And in this pool, there was an opportunity, people thought, to be healed. 
so that you, you would have an opportunity to get into the pool because they believed that when the water was stirred by the wind in a certain sort of way, it was the presence of an angel passing over. And so if you got into the water, you would be there where the angel was and therefore you would get healed. Only problem, this man is paralytic so he can't move. So what he basically needs is friends to dump him in there quickly while that's happening and it's never happened. He can never get there in time to get healed. But the point of the story is that you don't have to go anywhere to get healing. When Jesus is around, healing comes to you. So healing in the person of Jesus, who is healing and salvation and wholeness and everything that you need, Jesus is your answer. Jesus comes to him, says, do you want to get well? And the guy says, yeah, but I can't get to the right place. Jesus says, don't worry, the right place has come to you. And so he gets healed. Now, this is an amazing miracle. It's the third of the big miracles that John tells in his book. But what happens is, if you read down to verse 16, Jesus has done it on the wrong day. I know. Shocking, isn't it? Jesus has actually done it on a Saturday. He's done it on a Sabbath. So it says in verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And so in his defense, in other words, this is like a trial. Jesus is being accused. And so in his defense, Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. This is really good news. And what basically Jesus is saying is, look, God is so good and so willing that wherever you are, whenever it is, whatever you've done, he's going to do good stuff for him if you just turn to him in faith. The problem with all the religious people is, no, 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 no. Now you have to keep the rules in order to get the blessing. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not like that. He says, my father is always at work, and therefore I'm always at work. My father is always good, always willing, um, always powerful, always able, always for you. He is never withholding anything. He is never against you. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you what God is like. Even if it's the Sabbath, just heal this guy because that's what God does. Um, just really interestingly, as you kind of read on, they get even more offended by that. It says in verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in other words, the religious rules, but he's now making some pretty specific claims. For he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is saying, my father is always working, therefore I'm exactly like God. I'm always working too. And Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Now, a little sidebar on this. This is one of the reasons why a church like ours and all the churches in the New Wine Network, it's why we do what we do. Okay? The father is always at work. Therefore, we know he's always good. Therefore, we're always going to come to him and expect a miracle. We're always going to press in that. We don't always get it. But that's our faith that's the issue, our environment. It's not God's withholding of stuff. Okay? God is always good. Jesus is always trying to discern what the Father is doing and stepping into that place of partnership with God. But because he is God, he does it perfectly. He is the perfect human being. And so he is modeling for us not just the goodness of God, the willingness of God, but Jesus is also modeling for us what it is to walk in step with God by the Holy Spirit. And so we're always trying to discern, what is it you're doing? So if you've got a need, we'll pray for it. Okay? It doesn't matter. You've got a need, you don't have to leave the house of God without bringing it to God. 
But we're always trying to bring words of knowledge. We're always waiting upon God as, as we're preaching. We're always trying to preach to a point of ministry. Because whatever we think that God is doing in this service tonight, that's the thing that we really want to partner with God. You'll, you'll discover as you go on in the Christian life that if you just try and do your own thing to the best of your ability, you'll get somewhere because sometimes that's the right thing to do. But if you can learn to discern what God is doing and join in with what God is doing, that's when you're going to see breakthroughs. That's when you're going to see amazing things happen. Because it's like you add your little faith to God's massive oomph and the whole thing changes. So we're always seeking to follow God, whether it's in worship, in preaching, or in responding to what's being preached. And that's why Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Um, Becky and I have um, recently filmed some TV programs for TBN, which I think are going to come on later in, well, after Easter sometime. And um, we were interviewing some friends of ours, basically. Um, and one of the interviews we did was with this amazing couple in New Wine who plant churches on estates around Manchester. I mean, they're a phenomenal couple, Ben and Amy Woodfield. And... Um, the estates that they're working on, there are no churches there, and so a lot of people are four or five generations from ever having been anywhere near a church. It's like they didn't go to church, their parents didn't go to church, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, like there's no history of faith in these family trees. But they've come to faith by encountering God in some kind of way. So some of these churches, 70% of the people in the churches are new converts. It's, like, it's not like they've moved around from other churches because this is a new one and they're excited about it. It's not like they used to go to church and they've fallen. No, no, no. These are brand new converts. So obviously people are always asking them, what's your evangelistic strategy? I mean, how do you see so many people come to faith? And Ben just gave this brilliant answer. He said, well, I've asked God about that. And basically, as far as I understand it, this is the strategy. We constantly ask God, God, who is the next person that you're trying to, join, you're trying to draw to Jesus? That's all we ask God. Who is the next person that you're drawing to Jesus? And you get your eyes up from that and you start looking around and because you've asked God, the Holy Spirit starts to show you where is it work. It might be in a really unlikely person. But if that's the next person that God is drawing to Jesus, well, let's focus on that then and we'll pray for him and we'll go and witness to him. So we're always trying to see what God is doing and join in. The problem is the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were coming from a completely different perspective. So in their minds, basically, what, it wasn't about what God was doing. It was about God had already done, what God had said. And on the basis of what God done and said, he'd given some rules, and they were going to follow their rules, and the rules were going to be the way that they were going to make their approach to God. Now, have you noticed so often when you read the Bible, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, the wrong people are coming the wrong way to the wrong person all the time. You know, shouldn't be coming to Jesus, and they shouldn't be doing that, and they shouldn't be doing it now, and they shouldn't be doing it that way, and they're the wrong people anyway. And that's because religion is actually not a great thing. Religion is all about what we do. And at its worst, religion is the height of rebellion against God. Because it, it can almost kind of come before God and go, I've done all these things, God, and therefore you have to do something nice for me. And that is so twisted compared to what the gospel is. The gospel says, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how far you've run from God, if you turn back to him, he will come running to you. And what you cannot do for yourself and the righteousness that you could not establish from yourself, God in his grace, through Jesus, will give it all to you. 
And so the essence of the Christian life is not religion, where we do stuff to earn God's favor, but relationship where we respond to what God has done for us. Now, we might express that response in all sorts of ways, but the point is the relationship comes first. And in this series, what we're trying to talk about is how do we use those things not to establish some sort of claim on God, because that would just be twisted, but how can we use those things as a response to God when we understand that he's just freely given us stuff that we couldn't earn, we don't deserve? So a couple of weeks ago, Becky taught about waiting. That's the ultimate passive thing, isn't it? You know, waiting. We just wait on God. It's a way of saying, I can't do anything, but you can. You know, I just, I'm just waiting for you, expectant, faith. It's a great posture. Last week, Tom talked about Sabbath, that actually if you really want to get things done, if you really want to prosper in life, what you need to do is stop doing things and take the rest that God prescribes. The problem is the Pharisees had managed to even twist that. The Pharisees had decided that, that Sabbath was one of those religious duties where they could, if they kept it really well, and didn't walk so far and didn't, you know, didn't do anything like terrible, like heal people on the Sabbath, didn't do any work, then therefore God would think they're great because they're following the rules. And Jesus has to say to them, you've got it completely wrong. Man was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, man was made for the Sabbath. It's, it's for your benefit, for your blessing. It's to, it's to bring you into a place of life. The point is that all of these activities are not life-giving in themselves, but they lead you to a place where you can encounter the one who can give you life. And that's what Jesus is really driving at in this passage. So I'm going to focus now on the verses from 31 through to 40. That's the essence of what we're looking at. So we read the first two verses. Jesus says, look, I'm not going to testify about myself. I'm instead... There is one who has testified me, uh, for me, it's God. And then he talks about a number of ways that God has testified to him. So the first one he mentions is John the Baptist, his cousin. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so you might be saved. In other words, John the Baptist is just the voice of a human being. I mean, that doesn't carry a lot of weight. However, if you followed what John was saying it would have brought you to me and you would have been saved. You'd come into a relationship with the one who can really give you life. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Um, John was an amazing figure actually. Um, for most of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist had more followers than Jesus. Even decades after the events of the cross and the resurrection, which is after John the Baptist himself has been beheaded and martyred, Decades later, in Acts chapter 19, there are still followers of John the Baptist in Ephesus. So this is, a, this is a guy who has an amazing following, but he is also somebody who points to Jesus. Remember some of the things John said, you know, I must decrease, he must increase. He talks to his disciples and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And he tells them to go and follow Jesus. So his job is to point to Jesus. When John the Baptist and Jesus are talking, John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie your sandals. So he recognizes that Jesus is one who is greater. So the point is that there will be people who will preach the word of God, and that word can be used by God. If you add your faith to it, it will take you to Jesus and it will give you life. Then Jesus says, I've got testimony even weightier than that of John. In other words, not just human words, the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, 
These testify that the Father has sent me. In other words, not just somebody who preaches, if you add your faith, it could maybe save you because it's a true word, but miracles. Now, we sometimes refer to these works or these miracles as signs and wonders. And the point is, a sign points to something. Now, don't get too excited if you see a sign, but if you like what's written on the sign, take the journey and find out what it's pointing to, right? A sign is just a piece of wood. Same with a wonder. A wonder makes you wonder, makes you think. So it, gets, it gives you the opportunity to change your worldview, and a wonder suddenly like blows your mind, and you suddenly go, wow, maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe God isn't who I thought I was. Maybe the world isn't the way I thought it was. I'm now seeing all this in a new way because I've seen a wonder. See, a sign is an invitation to take a journey to discovering something. A wonder is an invitation to change your mind and change your worldview. And Jesus is saying, I have been doing works that the Father gave me to do. Actually, in John's Gospel, John points out that if he wrote down all the things that Jesus did, you wouldn't, you know, all the books in the world wouldn't be big enough to, you know, to contain all of that. So John says, at the end of his Gospel, John says, look, I've been very, very selective. And if you look at his Gospel, he basically has just seven wonders. Uh, seven's a theologically significant number. It's like for the Jews, it was the perfect number. And so at this point of John's Gospel, we've read three. Going back to John chapter 2, it says that Jesus was at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And while he was there, they ran out of wine. So Jesus said, well, fill up the baths and, and then take it out. And lo and behold, he's managed to turn six big stone jars into about 1,800 bottles of wine. It's quite impressive. Uh, then a couple of chapters later, somebody comes and says, look, my, my son's ill. Can you come and heal him? Jesus says, don't bother. If you've got the faith, let him be healed. And Jesus didn't even go to the house, but the centurion's son is healed. And then in chapter 5, which we've just read, we, the miracle of the man who um, can't get to the pool, doesn't matter because the healing comes to him. And all of these, it's said, are to reveal God's glory. It says Jesus performed these signs, he performed these miracles to reveal his glory. In other words, what he did showed who he was. And Jesus is constantly doing that. So whenever Jesus is going around preaching and teaching, he'll tell people that you know, God loves you. God has a kingdom which is going to change everything. And because we're hard of believing when we hear words, he would nearly always follow it up by going, and you get healed now. You can walk. And the deaf can hear. And the lame can run. And the blind can see. Because what you can't get your head around in terms of words, when you experience it, when you encounter it, suddenly the words make sense. So Jesus was always proclaiming the kingdom, but always demonstrating it as well, so we would understand the proclamation. So Jesus says, look, those are two things, right? There's the words that are preached by John and all the people that have come before me. There's the works that I've been performing. And then he says, ultimately, there's the Father himself. The Father who sent me, verse 37, has testified himself concerning me. But he says, this is the problem with the Jews and the Jewish leaders. He says, you've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor did his, does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one that he sent. So Jesus is saying, look, God himself has witnessed, and he's done that in a number of ways that could bring you to Jesus. The first is, you could have a visible, uh, you could hear his voice, an audible voice could lead you to God, Right? That was one of the big claims of the Jews, that they had heard the voice of God on the mountain. Or they could have a visible appearance of God. 
You know, I've, I've lost count of the number of times who just people have said to me things like, well, I'd believe if God just made himself visible. You know? Jesus says, I have been with you. If you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. So Jesus has said, look, your claim as Jews is that you saw, that you heard on the mountain, that you saw the glory of God on the mountain, but you don't believe. Your other big claim, of course, is that you have the word of God. No other culture in history has ever been given God's words. And they had God's words and they treasured it. But Jesus says, the problem is, even though the Bible could have led you to faith, you do not believe. And so something has gone wrong with their Bible reading. And that's where we come and jump in because something often goes wrong with our Bible reading as well. The point of all this is to lead us to Jesus. So this is what Jesus says. His word does not dwell in you because you don't believe. In other words, if you want to believe, which is what God wants you to do, you need to let God's word dwell in you. Verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What Jesus is saying is that the Bible is an amazing book, but don't put the Bible on the altar as if that's the thing that you worship. The point of the Bible is that it doesn't give you life, but it points to the one who can. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. If that word dwells in you, lives in you, grows in you, then it will bring you to Jesus and Jesus will give you life. That's the point of it. And that's really the point of all of the things that we're saying in this, in this series. So Becky talked about waiting on God. Tom talked about Sabbath in the weeks to come. We're going to be talking about things like prayer and fasting. That'll be a fun one. Uh, and worship, things like that. But the point is, all of those things in and of themselves aren't life-giving. But you can use them to get to Jesus, to grow in a relationship with Jesus, who is able to give you life. So as we think about the Bible today, just think what it means. The, the Bible, these words, are meant to dwell in us. So studying the Bible is good, but it doesn't necessarily lead to life. And we totally believe in studying the Bible. It's a good thing to do. In fact, one of the things we do in our church is we have the Westminster Theological Center. You can actually study a Bible college degree here in our church. Mark's doing it, others are doing it. You can study the Bible here and get to know God better and what people have written about him as part of your spiritual life. But just studying the Bible doesn't give life. It's got to dwell in you. Of course, reading the Bible is a good thing. I have to say, reading the Bible changed my life. So I am one of those people that did grow up in church. I used to go to church every Sunday, and um, it, it, I certainly believed everything I understood, but I didn't understand that much. And so if you'd said to me, are you a Christian? I would have said yes. And what happened was, um, at the massive age of 18, I went to university, and in the first week, discovered that there was this thing called the Christian Union. And I thought, well, okay, Christian Union, I'm a Christian, I should probably belong. Need to join. Didn't know there was a union, I thought I'd better join it just in case there's strike action or something. Um, and uh, so I joined the Christian Union, discovered that it was actually about reading the Bible. Now I happened to have my confirmation Bible with me, 
A confirmation Bible is basically a normal Bible, but with the pages stuck together with gold or silver, which was exactly the state of my Bible. Um, it had never been opened. I'd heard the Bible read in church, but I'd never read it for myself. So I went to these Bible studies, and they all turned to the passage, and I literally peeled the pages apart for the first time. You know, just couldn't get in there. But reading the Bible for myself turned out to be completely different from hearing it read in church. And reading the Bible for myself was like lighting the blue touch paper on my faith. I fell in love with God. I understood who Jesus was. I understood what he'd done for me. The Bible became this incredible book, not where I just learnt stuff, but where I encountered God. And I, I would say that was the biggest moment of change in my entire life. Reading the Bible for myself, encountering the presence of God in the pages. And so since then, I've read the Bible lots of times. I won't say hundreds, because that's not true. But I've read the Bible many, many times, and I've done lots of different things. Sometimes I've followed reading plans. I'm kind of surprising myself at the moment by um, going back and using Anglican morning prayer, but you know, it seems to work for me at the moment. I've read the Bible really numerous, numerous times. But what's really interesting is that even though I know it quite well, every time I read it, it's fresh. I see things I haven't seen before. But I know it well, but reading is not remembering, reading is listening. Reading is hearing God for today. The Bible says of itself that it is living. It's not life, it's living, and it can lead us to life who is Jesus. And of course, when Jesus says this, he is talking about the Old Testament, not even the New, where he's revealed for us more clearly. It's like on the road to Emmaus, you remember those disciples after the resurrection, they're totally confused, they're still, they're still kind of despondent because they saw the crucifixion. They've heard rumors of the resurrection but they don't know what to make about it. And then Jesus comes alongside, starts talking to them, they pour out their hearts and Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe the prophets and all that they have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to do these things and suffer before he entered into glory? And then it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus is basically saying is, the entire Old Testament is about me. The entire Old Testament is pointing to me so that when I turned up, you should have recognized me, you should have understood what, who I was, what I've come to do. And then there's this little kind of thing where Jesus pretends like he's going to go on further and they make him stay for the meal and then he disappears during the meal and then they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? That's what it's meant to be like when we read the Bible. Not a dry and a dutiful thing, but our hearts burning within us because we encounter God. There's lots of ways of maybe understanding what the Bible is. Essentially, the Bible is an invitation to a relationship. It's not a religious tool. I know we make it that way so often, but it's an invitation to a relationship. Every time God reveals something, he wants us actually to receive it. He reveals it because he wants us to take the journey to receive it. He wants us to respond. Sometimes people say, well, what's the Bible like? How would you describe it? And they say, well, it's a storybook about Jesus. It's like, well, yeah, but you're missing the point. Or sometimes if they're a bit more religious, they might say, well, the Bible's it's like an instruction manual. It tells you how to live. You know, it's the basic instructions for life. 
And it's like, well, yeah, but you're kind of missing the point. Really the best analogy for the Bible is a letter. And I know it was, humanly speaking, a letter that was inspired by one human being to another group of human beings in very different contexts over the scope of the whole Bible. But essentially, notwithstanding that was how it was created, the heart behind it and the way the Holy Spirit uses it today, it's a letter from God to you. Talking about who he is, talking about who you are, talking about the way the world is and how he wants you to respond. And I'd love us tonight to, to really dethrone religion. Uh, if you're not a Bible reader, I would love you to read the Bible, but not as a religious activity. I would love for you to read the Bible to strengthen your relationship with God. If you are a Bible reader, I'd love to encourage you to think again about, is your Bible reading fresh and vital? You know, are you coming with expectation? You know, so often in the Christian life, we talk about the things we ought to do or we should do or we have to do. Actually, why don't we talk about the things we get to do? We get to read the Bible. And as we get to read the Bible, we get to hear God speak to us. I wasn't sure how to respond. Um, we'll do some prayer for each other in a minute. But just as this afternoon, as I reflected on having given this talk in the morning, um, I was really taken by one of the bits of psalm that we used in the, the first morning service. And what I'd like you to do is take the Bible from the seat in front of you and turn to page 620. And what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna make a prophetic declaration. These are words that were written by um, basically an anonymous person. They were written two and a half thousand years ago. They were written about the Old Testament, not the New. We have the New Testament, so we've got even more to rejoice in. But if you go turn to page 620, and you look at the bit that says none, um, verse 105, yeah, it's a long psalm. We're not gonna read the whole thing. We're just gonna read this little uh, few uh, set of eight verses, starting at 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Now, we're gonna read this a little bit slowly, a bit deliberately, um, because I want you to be able to, I want you to read this with as much faith and sincerity as you can muster. Now, I know that whenever we do anything like this, we're always stepping into something that's a little bit beyond us. Okay, so that's okay. Sometimes you can be a bit aspirational in things you say. I think when we're singing, like we're singing, Jesus, I love you, I surrender all. I think sometimes that's a bit of a lie. Is it, is it just me? Maybe I don't surrender everything. Maybe I don't love Jesus as much as I should do. But I want to. I want to say those things. And so I say them and I... I know that God would take it in the spirit it's intended and help me grow into it so it becomes a reality. Well, we're going to do the same with these words of the Bible. Um, so just take a, a few seconds just to read down from 105 to 112. He talks about being faithful to the word of God. He talks about even in suffering that God would actually preserve us according to his word. Talks about wanting to know God's laws and his ways talks about even if we're making messes with our life, that we won't forget God's law. talks about even if people are attacking us, we're going to hold faithful to God's precepts. Um, it talks about these words being joy to our hearts and 
Then it ends with an incredible statement of faith, a declaration, my heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. I don't know if I can say that, but I want to. So why don't we stand? Father God, as we join together in repeating the words that were set down for us over two and a half thousand years ago by a man who had encountered you through reading the Bible, we pray, Lord, as we read them, that they would become true for us and increasingly true of us. We pray, Lord, that you would release faith and you would help us to come to that place where your Bible has its right place in our own lives. Holy Spirit, let this prophetic declaration draw us deeper into a relationship with you. And so let's read it together. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. So Lord, I want to pray that we as individuals and as a church and the church in this nation would be a church that trembles at your word that we recognize that this is a divine word spoken to us, which has the power to bring us to Jesus, who alone can give us life. And so help us not to read it religiously, but help us to be passionate and, and desperate to meet with you in the incredible way that your scriptures enable us to do.